Welcome to the Legal Lowdown podcast series by Barton Gilman. Today, we have Parrish Lentz returning to talk about trust and estates planning. This follows our part one session that talked about planning and caring for your parents. Today's session will discuss personal planning for you and your family. Welcome back, Parrish. Thank you, Diana. It's great to be here. So let's get started right away. And the first question I could think of is, what would happen if I just didn't have an estate plan at all? Well, it happens all the time. And uh, as we discussed in the in the prior podcast, for while you're alive, you really need to have a financial durable power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, and a HIPAA authorization. If you don't have those in place, your family has to hustle and improvise. And a lot of times, if, if it's a medical setting and you need to go to another place or you need a certain treatment, they may require you to get a guardianship for, for your loved one. And that is an expensive and time-consuming process. And it can be, sometimes it's a battle for the families. So it's important. And, and the same thing goes for your, your finances. If, if those items are not in place, then your family really has to improvise. And that is the opposite of planning. Planning is, let's sit down. Let's talk about our goals. Let's knock this out. Let's get our batting order all set up the way we want it, the people I trust, the people I know I can rely on. And maybe it's different for healthcare, maybe it's different for finances, but it's taking the time, sorting through the options. If something terrible happens to you and you're operating in a crisis, you're improvising and you're working on the fly and it could be the worst day of your life. You know, it could be dad had a heart attack, mom had a stroke, and you haven't put anything in place and the family is scrambling, and it's it's a it's a tough situation to be in, and it's an easy thing to avoid putting your family into. Okay, just as a personal example, my husband and I did a will fifteen years ago, and we set up a trust, um, and we did that right before about a month before we were having our first child. We're all set, right? We have those in place, and we're good. Um. Well, it depends. If you want to think you're good, you, you could you could do it that way. Um, I'm just trying to think. I think that so that was about 2003. That's right. So a lot has changed, and I would say so. When I first started practicing, the estate tax exemption for both Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and the federal government, the exemption from estate tax was six hundred thousand dollars. So today it's about six million for an individual. So a lot of what motivated people in the 90s was fear of estate taxes. And it was a well-reasoned fear because a lot of, you know, a lot more people had to to pay estate tax. Um, There's a lot less concern about that. So a a married couple for for federal purposes uh, with some basic trust, they can shelter 11 or $12 million. That covers... 99.6% of the people um, that I deal, or or hopefully I'd like to deal with more of those people, but (laughs) that covers most people. Uh, The people who do have that amount of money really need to, they really need to do the financial planning because the estate tax is is so high. So things change. What may have been a, uh, you know, may have been more tax-driven planning uh, when, when you did your will, that needs to be revisited. There's an extremely depressing American Bar Association uh, website 
that tells you, you know, you need to have your estate planning look at there's something like three, four, five Ds, death, divorce, decade, I don't know, depression, disaster. (laughs) I don't know. It's terrible. But, you know, you need to revisit these things that happen. Maybe something, you know, maybe you inherited some money. Maybe, you know, you have a a family business or a, a treasured family vacation property that needs some some special attention. But, you know, as we go along in our lives, or maybe it turns out we find out that this wonderful child of ours is just terrible with money. They're never going to be good with money. And every dollar they get will will be spent and maybe leveraged to get even more. So, you, you know, also in terms of the people you pick for your powers of attorney, for your executors, your trustees, those people may have died. They may have drifted out of your lives. And so with those depressing Ds in mind, you know, it's, it's something that needs to be looked at. The other thing is we live in a very uh, mobile society. So we had a client uh, who moved into Rhode Island. I met with, with him and his family, and <clears throat> we looked at his assets, and I said, well, you, you know, you have assets. You need to do some estate tax planning. He said, oh, no, I don't think so. Because I just I had this done a couple of years ago in New York, and and the lawyer there said I I didn't have to worry about estate tax planning. I said, well, that was right for New York, but now you live in a, a bluer state that has a much lower estate tax, and probably the the or the lowest the lower threshold for filing estate tax returns. So for Rhode Island, Massachusetts. They're about the the bluest states around, very low threshold, a million dollars currently in Massachusetts and a million five in Rhode Island. So a lot happens, people change, and so these definitely need to be updated. And, and it also should be a process. It's not static, it's dynamic. You you know, you need to think about the changes in your life. Okay. <clears throat> so the addition of another child, um, Family situations definitely have changed um, all of the, uh, the the entire sort of package that you work on with an estate attorney needs to be updated and revised every time you go through any kind of significant change in your life. Well, maybe not. Maybe you don't need to, but you need to have the frame of mind, not that this is great, it's all done, we're going to put it on a shelf, we're all set, because things do change. The other thing that, that is a little bit more prevalent is if a child or a potential beneficiary is disabled and they're on a means-tested program um, like, like a Social Security, um, giving them a big chunk of money is really going to throw a wrench into their works, into, into their lives. It'll knock them off of a means-tested program that they rely on, like like Medicaid. And all it will do is it will spin down a bunch of money that would otherwise have been um, covered uh, by a government program. And when that's all done, then they've got to go through that process again of requalifying for the government program, which um, can be a battle. Okay. That's an interesting outcome to such a well-intentioned action. 
Um, is there any difference between when a mother passes and a father passes in terms of planning? Um, you know, I know when you when you sit down with a planner and you talk about um, setting up like a, a disability insurance or, or that element of things, there's a definite difference. I recall from um, the sort of financial windfall from when a father passes versus a mother passes. What about the rest of estate planning? Well, I, you know, again, everybody's different. Some people feel very strongly that <clears throat> when the first spouse dies, everything should just go to the surviving spouse. Um, maybe for tax reasons, maybe for a potential remarriage, um, which we talked about a little bit in, in our, or a lot in our prior podcast, um, it's a difficult thing um, to have a discussion uh, about, hey, if I die, well, it's not an if, I will die. When I die, if I predecease you, you know, what kind of planning do we want to do in case you remarry? You know, do we want to have something set aside for our children from our marriage? Um, it's a difficult discussion, but it is one that is uh, frankly, I avoided for a long time when I first started practicing, but people need to, they need to address it. And if they're, um, uh, if they're honest, because, um, you know, people, the longevity today is very different. Um, uh, you know, my dad and mother-in-law both died in the same year. They're both 71. I think if you died when you're 71 in the 1960s or seventies, you said, Oh, you know, it's a good run. We say that's, that's young now. So I think, you know, for most of us, we'd like to hit the 80s and, you know, our, the health, everything in the healthcare is, is extending longevity. So it may, may not be improving the quality of our lives, but it's, it's definitely increasing the longevity. So questions like that, you know, do, do you want to factor that into your trust or, or your will, uh, I think are, are critical and, and. I think uh, when the first spouse dies and if, if you haven't done that planning and everything is joint and it all just automatically goes to the surviving spouse, that's going to present some challenges. Like we talked about in our prior podcast, if there's a, if there's a second marriage, <clears throat> most people probably don't want a repeat of when dad died and all goes to mom. If mom predeceases a second husband, it all goes to him. And, you know, it's, it's up to him to make the distributions, which may be a little different from what dad number one had in mind. Sure. Okay. What is the best way for someone to go about planning for what exactly they want their children to get when they die? Uh, and, and how do they even begin that process? We usually start with a, a questionnaire that is... Uh, talks about what their goals are, what their assets are, who they want to be at the wheel for them. And also, do you, you know, are there charities that, that are important to you, your schools, uh, Red Cross, or, you know, your local church, or, you know, a lot of people don't really think about that. Um, so we'll meet with people, go through their assets, talk about uh, where the assets will go, and also, um, had a very interesting meeting with some clients who had some 
you know, some substantial assets. And they were a little bit torn because they didn't like the idea of the estate taxes, the Rhode Island residents, <clears throat> uh, and they maybe even have federal estate taxes. So they, they have a lot of assets. But I said, now, so you want to, you know, we'll set up the trust, you know, we'll maximize the estate tax planning. And they said, you know, we've done a lot for our kids. We paid for their colleges and we paid for their weddings and we paid, all of them have graduate degrees. And we don't feel like we got a lot of thank yous. And, you know, maybe we don't want to just drop all this money into their laps. And so that was a perfect softball for me, um, talking about the importance of, of a trust because, <clears throat> um, you know, you can't guarantee that a child is uh, not going to be disabled, not going to have creditors, not get divorced. You know, bad things can happen. And if the money's in a trust, it's always there for them. If, if you have a good trustee, they'll take care of them. Once the money's out of the trust, it's you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. It's really... <laughs> really hard. Um, and so as I was crushing the softball up over the scoreboard, they did say, oh, well, yeah, you know, we're not, not so sure about um, this, this marriage that our child has. And, and I looked at them and they said, yeah, we have our concerns. And it reminded me of another client who said to me uh, when we were talking about his, his marriage, he said, do, do I have the best marriage on the planet? Nope, not even close. So if people are, these are tough conversations, but to be realistic about it, there's a lot to walk through with people instead of saying, when I die, I want my three kids to get a third of everything I have. Right. That's a real simple way to go about it, but it may be counter to what your values are and your goals for your children. Sure. You may not be looking at all the different factors that are coming into play. And maybe that goes to what an uncomfortable topic it is, that people come up with that quick, down and dirty, I'm just going to make everything equal plan. Right. And, and a lot of people will come in <clears throat> and they know what they need. They say, well, I just, I need a will. Just do a will for me. And I said, well, you know, here's some other things to think about. And they say, no, really all needs a will. I was like, well, a will's no good until you die. So you need these powers of attorney for healthcare and, and financial purposes, or you need to trust because most of us are going to have an extended period of disability. It's a bummer, but statistically, that's, you know, sudden death ain't what it used to be. So we're going to have this, this period of disability. And, you know, there's a lot that a will doesn't cover. We talked about that a little bit in our prior podcast, but for most of us, like, if, if you're a married couple, you, your house is probably joint, and your biggest asset um, is probably your life insurance. The life insurance is a contract, and you tell the company, when you die, you pay my wife, you pay my trust, you pay my kids. Your will's got nothing to do with it, unless you name your estate as, as a beneficiary. So for, for a lot of people, that's a pretty common mistake they make is they do go through this process. They do want some restrictions. They do want to trust. But the biggest asset they have is their insurance, and they haven't looked at the beneficiary designation. So they have a $2 million life insurance policy, and 
maybe it all goes out to those kids who are no good with the money mm-hmm. or not in-law you weren't wild about, they end up getting that big chunk of money despite having done all the planning. So it's it's a lot more of, of a process. So when the people come in and say, hey, all I need is a will, I say, well, let's talk about that. Sure. And can you tell us a little bit more about a beneficiary designation for those of us that are not familiar or comfortable with it? Sure. The um, beneficiary designation, so we all have these in our lives. These are contracts and the most common are life insurance. So you set up that policy, you fill out your beneficiary designation. So for, you know, married couples with, with children, what we usually recommend is it will go to a trust. Or it'll go to your spouse. If your spouse isn't living, then it will go to a trust. You just want to avoid having it go out to to minor children because most of the time, if a minor child's a beneficiary, they're going to need a guardianship in the probate court, which is also an unexpected result. We've had a couple of generous grandmas who wanted to do something nice and leave the grandchild, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, but you know, the kid's twelve years old. So they have to have a, a guardianship. So the other, the other big assets that people have for beneficiary designations are qualified retirement plans. So your IRA, your 401k, your 403b. So that is usually a, a major asset. And depending on what someone's done for a living, we have, uh, you know, doctors and professors have very large uh, retirement plan. So it's really important to pay attention to those beneficiary designations. Also, if you're trying to balance things out, um, the, the being a beneficiary of a qualified plan is kind of the last thing you want because every dollar you take out of that, you pay income tax on. So it's different than, you know, the insurance policy, that money you basically take without any income tax. So whatever your income tax rate is, you just subtract what you're getting from from that IRA. So that one's not as great. The the other thing that, um, and I'll just keep, you know, beating this drum of the of the second, third, and fourth marriages. The other thing, um, we had a, a matter, very bright guy who was an engineer. Um, he had a plan. So he had a, he was divorced. He had three sons from his first marriage. He was going to take care of them with his with his qualified plan. So he made his three children, they were the beneficiaries before he got married of his qualified plan, call it a million dollars. Then he had a million dollars of his real estate and joint accounts and everything. That was all going to go to his second wife. Good plan, except for one thing. When you're married, you can't leave your qualified plan to someone not your spouse without your spouse signing off on it spousal waiver. So this guy with the plan, which he did himself, is a smart guy, kind of, um, he, his wife got the house, got all the accounts. She talked to her lawyer. The lawyer said, hmm, did you ever sign that spousal waiver for this qualified plan? I know I don't, re- I don't recall ever signing anything like that. Huh, let's look into that. So she ended up with if not all the bulk of that money that he really intended to go to his sons. So these beneficiary designations are an integral part of of the estate planning. And a lot of times, you know, you have this idea of let's just do the documents. Let's do the trust. 
let's do the will, got the powers of attorney, and we're good to go. But that's not how we do it. You know, we try to sit people down, slow people down and say, hey, you know, it's not enough to have these vehicles set up. They've got to be funded. It all has to, it has to work together. So uh, another thing for the beneficiary designations, because of that income tax, kind of that Uncle Sam mortgage on every dollar, um, for people who are charitably minded and who do have large um, retirement plans or even not so large, we say, why don't you leave something for the charity out of that because the, the nonprofits don't pay income tax. That, that $50,000 they get is going to be $50,000, whereas for somebody in a you know, 20% tax bracket, it's only going to be $40,000. Mm-hmm. So the beneficiary designations, I would say, are that's probably one of the most important things that, that we look at as, as part of the whole planning process. Okay, and you hit on another important element in your story um, about the, the very smart man with the sons that he did his form himself. There are a lot of will and power of attorney do-it-yourself online forms out there. Can you explain to me the pros and cons of those forms? Uh, obviously, you're going to have a certain bias in that explanation. Well, why would I have a bias? But I'm Anna? sure you also have some excellent anecdotes to back up your recommendations on that front. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some real unfortunate cases out there, and you know, they're in the headlines. I think the real issue is... I've done this for for 20 years or and, and there's there's you know plenty of good estate planning attorneys out there and we do this a lot and this is a very important and to do it your first time out without really I mean you definitely should educate yourself about estate planning estate taxes powers of attorney and trusts and long-term care and all those things but at the end of the day like like the client who who moved from New York and said well I don't you know I know, I, you know, I, he told me that he didn't have an estate tax problem. Yeah, well, you, you do. You do now. Welcome to Rhode Island. Um, so, so the problem with that is kind of going in it with the idea of like, well, all needs a will. So if you go to LegalZoom, which is the most popular one uh, by far, and you're like, um, maybe you get the power of attorney because you get the whole, you get maybe the gold package and the power of attorney is only another uh, $11, $14. So maybe you do it by price and not by, you know, when I sit down and, and we talk about, well, here's what happens. You know, do you want to go through a guardianship? Do you want to get a guardianship for your child or, you know, go through all this um, this nonsense? The other thing is um, you might not integrate your assets with the plan that you set up, like the guy with the beneficiary designation. And, and there was a certain elegance to his program. It avoided probate. He didn't need a will. He didn't need a trust. He had decided everything was just going to go out to his children and his second wife. But he screwed it up uh, because he didn't know about the spousal waiver. And the custodian of his retirement plan, you know, they didn't call him and say, hey, are you married now? Have you had this big change in your life? And have, you know, if, if, you know, we notice that your children are the beneficiaries and now that you're married, if you want to keep it that way, you better have your spouse sign off on it. Otherwise, everything's shot. So, um, you know, for, for a lot of people who are, you know, maybe they're younger, they have young children, and really they're just doing it for, uh, you know, they want to make sure they're guardians for their young minor children in case they both die. 
Um, that's okay. You know, you, you do get that taken care of, but integrating everything is not part of the services that, that a legal zoom provides and, and, you know, taking an overall look at, okay, here's what you've got. And also, you know, if there's some special considerations, you know, you have a, a family property that you, you want to go to your children. That's mom's. That's always been a mom's family. And, and maybe dad can use it if mom dies first, but that should go to the children. Or you have a family business. Um, most of the, the business planning we do for people, we ask people, how would you feel about having your, your partner's wife as the new co-owner with you or his children? You know, that's not maybe, but uh, <laughs> usually that's not what they want to do. So it's a complicated process. And I think if, you know, it's sold as a, let's take care of this. It's real simple. You do this, you know, you'll go through, you'll fill all this stuff out. But, you know, the forms are, are part of the planning, no doubt. But it's really the integration and the reviewing, also projecting like, okay, you're, you're doing these estate plans. Looking back, you have young children. What about looking forward? Are you, you know, you can have a big windfall or is, is a college expense going to crush you every penny you have is, is going to be gone because of college planning. So um, the forms themselves may be okay, but you don't know. You've never done it before. Sure. And there's so much value in your consultation, just asking yeah. the right questions that the yeah. forms don't ask um, to help you think through the things that you're probably not thinking through, which brings me to trusts. Can you explain a little bit more about setting up trusts for your your children? Is there is there a trust for all your children if you have multiple? Is it a trust per child? Do you set up a trust for your spouse? How does that work exactly? Well, we charge per trust, so we want you to have as many as <laughs> many possible. Many as you need. There's no. one for your dog. Um, um, <laughs> typically, although Rhode Island is a pet trust-friendly state, so oh, that is something you know that people should know. Um, there's a Rhode Island statute for for pet trust. It depends on you know uh, a just a bedrock uh, a great vehicle is. Uh, a revocable trust. A lot of times people think of a trust as, oh, that's a trust. It's irrevocable. I can't change it. The money's taken away from me. The trustee is a giant bank. That's not really what we do. More commonly, you have a revocable trust that you can fund while you're alive. It will help you avoid probate. Uh, it will also provide for, like the like the power of attorney, you can, you can nominate the person you want to take care of your finances. When you don't really, maybe you don't know exactly what's going on, your, your faculties are starting to slide a little bit, you're losing your leverage, it's good to have the person that you pick. And with a trust, if you've already set up a trust and say, you know, you have a Fidelity account has, you know, $200,000 in it, you set up the trust and you go ahead and, and retitle that account so that the owner is the trust. But you're the trustee of it. So as long as you're going great guns, you're, it's, it's still yours. It uses your, your social security number for tax number. But when something happens, you're set up and it has the features built into it. The estate tax efficiency, you know, maximizing um, the estate tax benefits, protection for your children for maybe they're not great with money or maybe you never liked 
the son-in-law that she married, um, and also for disability. So you have a, a provision in there that gives the trustee the discretion to maybe withhold the funds and, and uh, treat it like a disability trust. And, and again, that would all avoid a probate, which again, when people say, well, I, I just need a will, I'll say, well, you know, do you know how that works? You know what probate court is? Oh, no, well, that's a court proceeding. It's public. People will know, you know, for your probate assets, did this guy have $2? Did he have $200 million? It's all there. It has to be accounted for, and it can be a time-consuming and, and expensive process. Okay. And are there any common mistakes that people make with trusts, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill basic things that you see routinely? I, I think that um, when I first started practicing, um, one of the – it's not necessarily a mistake, but when we started, we would have – the trust would pay out to children – you know, a third when they're 25, a third when they're 30, a third when they're 35. <clears throat> and um, what we've come to learn is that um, age isn't always an, a good indicator of maturity or the ability to handle funds. So kind of going back to the old saw about, you know, can you guarantee a client that your child won't be terrible with money, won't have creditor problems, won't get divorced, Um a lot more now people say, I put a lot of thought into who my trustee is going to be. It's going to be my brother or it's going to be a bank or it's going to be my accountant. And I really trust this person. So I want to give them a lot of discretion. So they have the discretion if they want to pay for medical school and knock out the whole trust and won't be anything left, they can do that. If they want to pay for a wedding, if they want to pay for the first house, it's gone. If somebody really is into powerboat racing or NASCAR <laughs> and that's going to be their career, maybe the trustee says, I tell you what, I'm going to, give, I'm going to write you a check for $8,500 to get you started. And that's really going to get you on your way. So without that, um, that is not so much a mistake, but it's definitely more uh, of a trend. The other thing is making sure you've got a great trustee or you know, uh, a lot more people now are saying, well, I really trust my brother, but, you know, we're all aging. And some people say, if I'm not around, I want my brother to select the next trustee. If he can't do it, you know, if he can't serve or if he, he sees, hey, I'm going to do this for about two more years, then I'm going to select that person. Um, and then the other common mistake for trust is not funding them so that they don't really work. Again, getting back to the beneficiary designation, if you've got a giant life insurance policy and you haven't changed the beneficiary to your trust, you've, you know, you've put a lot of thought into your documents, you've done some good work, but it's not going to work right? Because, because it's not going to follow the path. It's kind of like the, the guy who forgot about or didn't know about the spousal designation, the spousal waiver. So you've got to have it funded properly um, beneficiary designations, getting the right trustee, and setting it up a way that you're really comfortable with it. And uh, fortunately, I think a lot of people are getting away from the old, well, we're going to let the oldest child be the trustee or the oldest child be the executor. Uh, you know, that's, again, 
not always a sign that that's how they do the that's how they do that king stuff over in England. Mm-hmm. That's really not a great way to do things here. People need to, to take some time and, and think about what they're going to do for having the, the proper person execute their trust or, or their estate. Okay, you mentioned a little while ago about a, a vacation home or the family compound, and we've obviously talked a little bit about the family compound myth. Can you share your thoughts on the myth of the family compound? Sure. A lot of people, and just in general, backing it away from the an asset, a lot of people will do their planning sort of looking to the past. You know, our grandparents bought this place. We've spent every summer there. We've spent every ski season there. We've always gone there, and it will always be in the family. Always is a long time. Every piece of property mostly will be sold at some point. So you need to think about it's an it's a great thing when somebody else is paying for it. <laughs> so when when the generational shift comes, when when grandma and grandpa pass it down to the parents, the grandkids don't know about the shift in the payments. When it comes time and everyone has these emotional attachments and these are great properties. I mean, we live southeastern New England is an unbelievable place to live. Our, our coastal communities, you know, the Vineyard, Westport, Little Compton, uh, the Cape, phenomenal. You know, the ski places, the, the hike, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, it's fantastic. Um, however, there's a carrying cost for these places. Um, and that, before people get into the planning, that's, they need to think about that. And they also need to think about Everybody's not going to use this place equally. You got somebody who lives in Oregon, you know, they're not going to come for every weekend. And, you know, is there going to be a bloodbath over who gets to use it on the 4th of July um, or Christmas or New Year's or whatever the, you know, the, the, the peak season is? So, so these are special assets and they need to be addressed realistically. Yes, you want to preserve them. Yes, they've meant a lot to the family. But what's this going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years? You know, you've got three children. They've got three children. It just keeps going. You know, 25 people, it's very difficult to operate a, a, a property harmoniously. So you need to, to build in some provisions for that. Same thing for a family business, especially if there's some people who are active in the business. Some say... The son is active in the business. He has two sisters. And that can also be a, a tough conversation because you get to assess that that value. And I met with some people. Um, it was a, probably a third or fourth generation business. Dad had had a health problem. Son was a successful uh, salesperson living in the Midwest. And he got the call. Your dad had a heart attack. You have to come home. And you have to take over the family company. So he did. He dropped everything. He came back. And he was better at it than his father. And his father said, hey, you're better at this than I was. (laughs) So you're in charge of all this growth, operation, everything. And I'm going to do what this this business does. And, you know, this is great. So when I met with the parents... Son wasn't there. Do the planning. I said, "Hey, uh, do you want to? So you want this business to go to your son? 
You know, he's obviously added a lot of value when you die. That was another discussion about, mm, are we going to do this gradually? So, but definitely when you die, he's going to get that. Do you want to do something for your daughters to balance out? Because there was a lot of value in the company. Do you want to do something? Insurance policy or, you know, kind of offset this imbalance that he's getting. Maybe that's what you want. So I looked at the dad and he's nodding no. And I looked at the mom and she's nodding yes. So I said, oh, <laughs> this is going to be a little bit more of a discussion. But, you know, obviously you all, we're not going to crack this nut today. But this is a big deal. It's a lot of money. And so that's one thing. It's a lot of money. The second thing is anytime you treat children differently with dispositions, it's an emotional message. Whether you intend it or not, you know, obviously he's getting 20% more. You must love him 20% more, mm -hmm. maybe 25. But it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. But again, those are, they're complicated issues. And family business, the, this, you know, and the myth of the family compound is it's going to go on like this forever. Well, wait till the tax bill comes or you got to pay right. the yard guy or it's time for the new roof and, and pop. There goes the, uh, there goes the myth. Yeah. It's not as ideal as you think that it might be. To wrap up on this particular section, I just want to talk about um, sort of guardianship, issues of selecting your children's guardian when you do have that meeting with an estate planner and you're talking about your will. That's a very challenging decision to make. And I don't know if you have any advice for parents out there who are facing that decision. Um, and then I do want to steer it quickly in the direction of when your children become a, a legal adult, and but they're still in your care. You're still paying their college bill, paying their health care costs, they're on your insurance. So yes, they're an adult, but they're your child and you are still caring for them as a child. And that can pose interesting challenges. The most common question that we get for the guardian of the minors is, I say, the guardian is going to have the physical care and custody of this child. Who's the person you want to make their peanut butter and jelly sandwich to cut the crust off? Who's that going to be? Who's going to put them on the bus? Who's going to take them to Target or whatever, the back to school shopping? And then, is that the same person you want to make financial decisions for their trust? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And sometimes people want to have a team approach. And they say, well, shouldn't that person have the money if they're taking care of the child? And so I say, absolutely, they should have the access to the money. But is that the person who's good with money, is going to understand, you know, is, is, you know, has your values in terms of the money? You know, it, it may be somebody not necessarily you want to have dinner with every night who does that. Maybe they, you know, are a little bit more hard-nosed about, about the money, and that's who you want. But it's so personal but we did find out that, unfortunately, with the station nightclub fire, we found out the difference that in probate court, what you have in your will governs. So uh, parent, the parents died in the fire. The grandparents lived nearby. They took, took the kids in, kept them in the school where they'd always gone to school and took care of them. And then, you know, a month, six weeks goes by, they get the will. The will says... We, for our guardians, we want our friends in Maine 
Oh, boy. So the grandparents went to probate court, and they said, hey, these kids need to stay in the same school. They need to stay in Rhode Island. This is where their parents raised them. And the judge said, well, this isn't family court. Family court, the standard is what's in the best interest of the child. This is probate court, and this is what's in the will. So the children are going to Maine. So that was tough, but that's what you know. I tell I tell people. Um, so that's what they need to know for the guardian. So f- jump ahead a few years, a child turns eighteen. In the eyes of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, they're an adult. So that means a lot, criminally and civilly. They're uh, they're an adult, and you and I are old. And we don't think they're adults. They don't have a decent head on their shoulders, most of them. That's what we think because we're old and cranky. But legally, they can contract and they have rights. And those rights under HIPAA, we can't see their medical records anymore. So when they're 17 and 361 days old, we, we can be right there and we can get their medical records. A week later, we're out unless we have that, that HIPAA authorization or if there's some kind of a, an urgency, a crisis, and the, the hospital gives us a break. So we have to do planning for them. So, you know, my sons that are in college, you know, you need to have a health care power of attorney. They need to execute a HIPAA authorization. They should have a durable financial power of attorney, even though they're broke. Um, but in case there's a beef with a landlord... And the landlord says, hey, butt out, dad. You don't have any standing here. Well, actually, I'm his attorney in fact, so let's talk. And uh, those are are important things to have because they're adults. And it's a difficult thing for parents um, under the uh, Obamacare. You know, they're going to be on until they're 26. They're going to be on our health insurance. So we might get a bill or a, a explanation of benefits that we all get from our, our health care. And it says, hey, visit to the emergency room. Oh, they didn't mention that. I wonder what happened. You can't find out. Was it a sprained ankle? Was it a drug overdose? You don't know. So it's a conversation to have with your, your children about, I, if I'm paying, I want to know. And by the way, I care. So um, those are critical things to have. But in the eyes of the law, you're an adult when you turn 18. In the eyes of your parents, you're a kid. Yeah, right, <laughs> so right. it's a huge, it's a huge difference. Yeah. And we're not, most of us aren't ready for it. And, and we don't think, oh, and, and same thing for, for college. They have uh, rights. Uh, you have to get a, a waiver from the college that says I can look at their grades. I can look at their, their invoices because it's theirs. You're stroking the check for it. Yes, thank you very much, but... To get access, they have to they have to waive their rights to it. Okay, so very important that once they're eighteen, just that you're their parent carries no weight or rights whatsoever. Not like it used to. No, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, all these a lot of these. There's the HIPAA release and the FERPA release for the colleges. So it's something that's important to familiarize yourself with. On also, some of my colleagues say if your child is going to go to college, you need to familiarize yourself with their disciplinary procedures. What happens if they're caught with an open container of an alcoholic beverage and they're underage? Is it a zero tolerance? Is it a one strike, two strike? 
And, you know, what are their rights? Because I think it's been clear, you know, in the press that investigations, not necessarily what some of these institutions of higher learning are not their strong suit. Sure. So they've struggled with, with some of their requirements under Title IX. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Parrish. This has been so helpful and it's so much information and um, it, it's been an excellent two hours with you. And um, thank you for telling us everything there is to know and so about much trust more in than estate you planning. You to know. Thank you, <laughs> Diana. Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information.